Estado, Nuevo México el Estado. Welcome, everybody, to episode two of Real Bad, the official Breaking Bad podcast of the Real World Podcasting Network. I'm Kevin. With me is Jerome. And Jerome, how are we doing this fine day? We are doing uh, pretty well. I am very excited to give you all of my hot takes on Breaking Bad season two. Uh, Here's my first hot take of the the episode. Kevin, are you ready? You're sitting down? I am. I'm sitting. I'm holding on to my my armrest. You can't knock me over with this hot take. Okay. Breaking Bad is a very good television show. Holy oh god. Okay. Good thing I studied myself there. I was so excited to do this podcast once I rewatched season 2. Now I I've watched Breaking Bad as I've mentioned in in the first episode. We're doing this in a in an interesting way cuz I've seen all of Breaking Bad except for El Camino, Jerome has seen none of it. So this is his first watch through. And I I think there's two things I forget. One, I forget how good the show is. And two, there's a lot of stuff in the show that happens earlier than I remembered. And I think that's, A, because Breaking Bad in and of itself is only five seasons. And it's not that many episodes in total. And then, B, it was so spread out when it aired. Things maybe felt longer and further away than they do in a condensed fashion. But I watched this. You know, there, I, my intention was to do one episode a day, and there was a lot of times where I just couldn't wait, and I had to watch the one right after it, and I just was glued to my television every time, and I was just dying to do this podcast again. So I'm really excited to talk season two. There's a lot more meat on the bone than season one, so to speak, and yeah, this this season overall, just putting it out there, is absolutely phenomenal, and I, it was hard to not just go right into season three, to be honest with you. Yeah, I kind of feel similarly. I definitely want to get into season three as soon as possible. My intention was to divide it up. Now, mine was more of a scheduling snafu on my part because I had some real life things to take care of. So I ended up watching season two in a weekend as well. But it was it was more unintentional, but certainly getting through it and just seeing the through lines and how everything makes sense. I am so glad that this show is five seasons because one of the things that I walked away from season two thinking is there is no way this show can be sustainable than for probably three or four more seasons. It would be impossible to do an extended run of this. Even Mad Men at seven seasons, I felt like was two seasons too long. And I feel like that show would have been perfect at five seasons. And it feels like they got the number of seasons right and probably the number of episodes right because just with how everything is building, I mean, it would just hard to be sustain. It would be hard to sustain the level of tension and the dread that comes with watching nearly every episode because in so many of these episodes, I mean, there are some really there's some really dark moments. There are some dark humorous moments, but there are some there, there are moments it feels like in every episode that will leave you gobsmacked. Most definitely, yeah. Incredible cliffhangers, some real jaw-dropping moments, some real tense moments. And I and I have to wonder if they learned a lot of lessons from their times on the X-Files. So some background is, is I actually went back and listened to the official Breaking Bad podcast, which they did one per episode for season two and going forward. There was none for season one. And I wanted to listen to it, one, because I never had listened to it, and B, to get some extra fun anecdotes for this podcast here. So if you hear me mention some stuff, that's some notes and whatnot. That's probably what's going to come from. 
But I hear a lot about Vincent Gilligan, who's on every episode of that show, and they'll have writers and and other people from the show come in. And you realize a lot of the staff and people they have there were folks who learned on the X-Files. And just from talking to them, you feel like there's a lot of lessons learned from their times on that show. Things that worked they carry over, things that didn't work they carried over. Um, And also just it's interesting to hear them talk about going from a show of such a major budget level of X-Files to something like Breaking Bad done on AMC and working with for that. So from that perspective, it's interesting. But I wonder if the amount of seasons and episodes and the way they're telling these stories both had to do with kind of the way television was going in that time. But B, I do wonder if it was lessons learned from their time on the X-Files. I also wonder about how much that previous experience affects Vince Gilligan because I think there are some of these creators who at times it, it feels like everything is so precious. I think about Matthew Weiner, especially on Mad Men and the way that he wrote that show and kind of his attitude towards television in general. But Vince Gilligan very much seems like a little bit more of an old school TV writer in that because he came up through the X-Files and having to produce 22 episodes a season it's almost inconceivable to me at this point to sit down and just watch 22 episodes uh, of a drama. And the show, this X-Files show, went on for like 10 seasons, and they were trying to tell a, a through line through all 10 of those seasons. It's just, it's remarkable to me that they that they did that. And now you're talking about 13 episodes where you can kind of pace things differently, and you can take a little bit more time, and everything is uh, everything can be treated a little bit more preciously than when you have a 22-episode season, because when you do that, you're going to end up with episodes that kind of can, can kind of go by the wayside and are irrelevant. But when you have a 13 episode season and when you have a writer and a, and a writing team that knows what they're doing and how to pace a 13 episode season, then you're going to end up with something really special because I think we've gotten to a point where a lot of showrunners talk about the concept of the 10 or 13 hour movie and that's when the shows just kind of feel like they're drudgery i think especially if some of the netflix shows that just feel like they're doing 10 episodes because they're doing 10 episodes and they're just trying to make a longer movie with this it feels like every episode still means something and there's kind of a storyline that's going on and certainly some will stand out more than others but I would definitely say that what makes this show so special is the way that there's that they're able to tell a to tell a larger story, but still able to maintain episode integrity. Definitely. And I think what's interesting you say about episode integrity is kind of the way that season two is structured. We had mentioned in the first episode that season one of Breaking Bad was truncated due to the writer strike. And so this 13 episode season Really, it feels like episodes one and two of season two are basically the end of season one because it kind of wraps up the loose threads from season one. And then we go into a lot of new narratives with our characters as the season as uh, as the show progresses going forward. And what I liked is Vince Gilligan talked about that on the podcast, and he said that he's actually happy this happened because at the end of season one, it's it was both about writing a good show, but he says that he felt in the original ending of season one that they were pretty much giving away the farm because there was also this intention of we're writing this to get renewed for a season two. And so if you don't know you're getting renewed for a season, you try to make this big, huge, impactful finale so that there's more inclination if people think the show is exciting and want to see what happens in season two. But 
what they ended up doing with the continuation of it in season two is much less, I guess, grandiose than what their plans were. And he's actually happy it worked out that way. And we do get things wrapped up. You had mentioned you were not the biggest fan of uh, Tuco in season one. Well, fortunately for you, Hank, using his DEA tracking, ends up at his house and shoots and kills him in self-defense. So we get Tuco out of the way in season one, which begins the season two of now who's going to be the next buyer of this meth or are they going to get out of the meth business completely? Uh, We get to meet another Salamanca, his uncle Tio, which is funny because Tio is Spanish for for uncle. So it's one of those funny like um, double meaning names there. Uh, And it's it was to me, this was it felt to me more like the season one finale, but it was done really well, especially the scene where they attempt to poison Tuco and his uncle disrupts that. Uh, I just I, what did as someone who had your issues with Tuco and seemed like season one sort of ended with a little bit of a limp. What did you think of them kind of wrapping things up in these first two episodes? I was so glad that we literally pick things off immediately where the finale ended. And sometimes that is not a good thing. But I think in this specific case, I think it worked out so well because they were just able to kind of continue the momentum from that season ender. And it really did feel like it was a finale of season one. And I think it could have felt awkward, but it actually gave this season kind of a jumping start because it felt like we were, we weren't really setting anything up. I think there's some setup that happens in episodes three and four, but in these first two episodes, we're just going, we're going, we have Walter and Jesse kidnapped and um, that's kind of what is going on in episode two and kind of the chase is on and I, I very much appreciated what they did. And even though I'm not a fan of Tuco, I, I'm a fan of the, the of the character in theory. It's just, I think he kind of ends up being a caricature and it, it doesn't stop. And with a character like that, that's going a hundred miles an hour, that character is going to have a very short shelf life. And I think the greatest lesson that Vince Gilligan learns is that if you are going to do the big bad pun, not intended that, a slower build is much better. And I think we get that later in the season. Whereas Tuco is just right away. He's evil. Like there is almost no redeeming quality about this man because we basically see him kill one of his assistants right away. And another one of his assistants uh, goes by the wayside. I just, I really like the fact that they dispatched of Tuco in relatively short fashion. And I think it it was made all the better by the fact that Hank, who is kind of a mixed bag, did it because uh, I think it's a redeemable action to get rid of a character that I don't like. So good on you, Hank, and good on you, Vince Gilligan. Yeah, it was an awesome moment for Hank too, getting him involved in the situation. And of course, there's the drama as he's he going to discover Jesse and Walt at the house when it shows up. It doesn't work out that way with how the circumstances play out. And it leads to him becoming a bit of a hero at his own DA office and getting a promotion. We could talk about it a little bit later. But the uncle, his real name is Hector Salamanca on the show. He's actually played by Mark Margolis, who Vince Gilligan recruited because he enjoyed his role in Scarface so much. And I think he does a phenomenal job. It's not just facial expressions. It's full body expressions. He's he's. Not an invalid, but he's he's in a wheelchair due to a stroke. He's unable to speak. He's unable to do much on his own. And the acting from him, like, you know exactly what he's thinking and what he wants to say just through his movements and actions. And Hector is 
for me, one of the four characters introduced in this season that are going to become important parts of Breaking Bad going forward. So you only got a little bit of Hector here, both in this house and they bring him in later to speak to the DEA or speak rather use his bell as sort of a surrogate way to speak to the DEA, which leads to another great scene with him uh, urinating and or shitting his pants in their office. Uh, but I think the world of Hector and this is just a little bit of taste of what Hector Salamanca is going to bring to the world of Breaking Bad. I love the bell ringing. It's such a great prognosticator and a great sound effect because whenever you hear that bell, you know that something is going on. And I, now you said that he shed his pants. Was that, I I thought it was just a straight up fart joke. And the fact that Breaking Bad would do a fart joke is really impressive to me because you just would not expect this legendary iconic show to do something like that. See, I thought he did just like, really violently wet shit himself in the DEA's office to end the the line of con because you can you can move forward after a gross fart you can't recover and move forward when when one of your witnesses shits themselves I mean maybe it was just both and you know I I, I definitely appreciate a, a well-told fart joke because there there's an art to them Kevin believe me yes I, I believe there is uh, a, a couple things I want to mention also at top here. First, a little bit of good housekeeping from season one. Indeed, the reason that they did not kill off Jesse was because they liked the character so much. That was their intent, but they enjoyed Aaron Paul and they thought there was much more to do with Jesse. So they changed their minds. Uh, aunt Jenny, Jesse's aunt in the show who has cancer is actually based on Vince Gilligan's real life aunt. She had lung cancer and she passed away while they were filming season two. Uh, and, and my understanding is she didn't even she did not even get to see part of, of season one. But uh, both the name and the lung cancer stuff comes from Vince Gilligan's real life situation with his aunt. And in episode two, uh, when Jesse runs through the door of the shack that they're hiding out in, apparently the door that he ran through was real. It was not Hollywood magic. And it resulted in him passing out on the set. So. Uh, that goes to show, I guess, some of the, the the shoestring budget of AMC or just the fact that they that the door, a real door is going to have a better effect on camera than using a fake door. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and I guess uh, certain wrestling companies have decided that going through doors is a really good idea. So Breaking Bad is an innovator both in television and in the world of wrestling. It is indeed. People just like seeing stuff break is what I've learned from all of that. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Paul is he's really great. And the fact that a show like Westworld is basically bringing him in to save that show uh, says a lot about Aaron Paul, because that's, here's another hot take for you, Kevin. Aaron Paul is really, really good on this show. He is. And I actually really like the way that he and Walt structure their business because in, in some respects, and I think this is how, um, well, I mean, he kind of explicitly states it, how Walt sees everything is that he is Jesse's boss and that Jesse will do what he tells him to do. And now Jesse has his three drug runners who do the work for him. So they kind of have this system where they're controlling things, but they're not out on the streets slinging dope anymore, which obviously results in some issues. Uh, some of their stuff gets stolen. They lose money on a deal, which leads to a, a really uh, tough episode to watch in the middle of the season. Uh, one of their drug runners gets killed. All these other things are going on, and uh, that leads to another one of our important character meetings. But um, – it's interesting because I think a couple things happens with this one. You obviously get the dynamic where Walt feels like he's the one in control of this whole operation. But two, I think you get to see a lot of the more human side of Jesse. As we get these deals, you get him with the kid. Uh, there's the, the, the couple that steals the drugs from one of the drug runners and 
Walt has Jesse try to go get the money back. And when he goes to their house, the parents aren't home, but they're a small kid who's obviously malnourished, dirty, not in a great living condition. And Jesse really takes care of him while he can, while he's at the home and make sure when he leaves their house that he leaves him out for the police to find him and hopefully take him into better living conditions. And of course we have the stuff with his relationship going forward, but also the death of their one drug runner affects him much more than it does Walt. So I think you really got to see in one season Walt losing some of his humanity, but also the humanity and Jesse really getting to shine through. Well, I think what this season was able to do, and maybe this has to do with the episode counts, maybe it has to do with some adjustments that the writers made. It's that you're not only seeing, I, I think so much of the show was from Walt and Walt's family's perspective. We saw Skylar and we saw Marie, which we didn't really see a lot of Marie in the show. She is very much put into the background, and that's probably a good thing. But we not only see Jesse, but we get to see a lot more of Hank and his element. And I think these are all positive things. And whenever you're able to open up the show and create a cast of characters that people are interested and invested in, that's that's really what television is all about. Because television is is more of a hangout space. We wanna we wanna be with these people on a weekly basis and just hang out with them and enjoy what adventures they're doing. And maybe enjoy is the wrong word for a show like this, but I think to an extent you do want to see what these characters are up to. And I think part of what kind of makes the show feel just a little bit lighter is the fact that Jesse is more of a human being than Walt is. And the fact that we see Jesse trying to do the right thing at times, I think uh, it, it makes a difference in our perceptions of that character. And that's something that you, you know, is going to, is going to pay off at some point. And the most amazing thing to me is that we, the, 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 one of the people in that couple dies via an ATM machine (laughs) and it's not even close to being the darkest death of the season. I think that says a lot. And it's that the, whatever noise they were able to get for the squish of that person's head going under the ATM was the perfect grotesque, but also like absurdly grotesque so you kind of laugh more than you than you cringe at least for me anyways uh was really really well done uh and you mentioned i'll throw this in here you mentioned that marie is not present for much of the season i would agree that would be a good decision no matter what but actually betsy brant her the actress was pregnant the entire season of season two so i do wonder if they realized you know there might have to come a time where she's not going to be available to us so we can't write too much deep stuff for her in our season um or we're just going to not be able to have it continue for the rest of the season. They never explicitly say that they actually gave her a ton of credit for the amount of time she showed up to. Like, I think it was the day they filmed the party when Walt gets the news that his cancer has shrunken so much that she was like, she went into labor that day and she was like, I still want to come to the set and do this scene. And she did. And then like got whisked away to the hospital right away. So She's a trooper uh, for the scenes that she's in. And I think if you go back and watch, they put her in like her over doctor's coat or she happens to be like holding a pillow in front of herself, all these other things, especially because a lot of the scenes she's working with an actress who is supposed to be pregnant. Uh, and that comparison would definitely uh, make one wonder if that was the case. Yeah, it's it's difficult to work around characters that are pregnant, especially it's I feel like it's even harder for dramas because I feel like with comedies, you can make it a part of the show in some ways. But it just feels like on a show like this, it would be just so difficult to do that. So I think that does make sense why Marie is is not as par, not 
as much a part of the show. But I, I like I said, I think in a way it works out because I think focusing on some of the other characters is is to its benefit. And I think in, in particular talking about Hank, kind of this alpha male character, you know, he goes he goes through the ringer a little bit, not only uh, by killing by killing Tuco, but then there's there's a little bit of PTSD uh, that gets attached to that. And of course, he is uh, he is an alpha male, so he cannot express his emotions. The idea of him going to a therapist and talking about his feelings is antithetical to anything that he would even consider doing at this point in his life. And any time that, you know, anybody tries to have a real conversation with him, he, he is constantly deflecting and just being very surface level and kind of, you know, horsing around and things like that. And I think that in a way, I think it works to the show's benefit to have a character like this because Walt is a very specific kind of male character and Hank is such a far, he's both opposite and he's the same at the, at, at, at the, at a certain point because they both cannot express themselves. They're both kind of monstrous in their own ways, but the difference is that Hank, Hank is so much more outwardly just alpha male-y. Yeah. I actually really like what they did with Hank this season because after he's able to kill Tuco, they realize that they can use his help in uh, El Paso where there's apparently some bigger drug issues going down there. And you could tell in his office in Albuquerque, he is the alpha male. He's like the head of the office. People listen to him. People respect him. He can joke around, you know, take the piss out of everybody else. And here he's sort of laughed at because he isn't bilingual. He doesn't know Spanish like everybody else seems to. Uh, he doesn't have the same sort of control with his sense of humor. It's it's sort of frowned upon more than anything. Um he also can't stomach when they have the character of Tortuga played by Danny Trejo in a crazy scene uh, where at the end of the episode, an actual tortoise has the head of of Danny Trejo on it walking through the desert. He can't stomach it and that gets laughed. He gets laughed at because of it. And it actually turns out to be the best for him because as he goes away, it turns out to be a bomb and it hurts other members of the DEA. So he here he is. He, he experiences murdering somebody to being a fish out of water going from you know the biggest fish in a small pond to a small fish in a bigger pond he's laughed at by his co-workers and then has another traumatic experience now he has to go back to his old job where he's comfortable there but the damage has really been done mentally and he's having a hard time acclimating to all of this while dealing with everything else going on in his life and he you even have him making his own beer at home to maybe try to uh distract himself or just a new hobby he's picked up but uh, for somebody who seems so involved, who just seemed like nothing seemed to bother him very on the surface, just a fun kind of person to have him go through this back traumatic, traumatic stuff to deal with and have it bottled up inside. And he has troubles expressing himself, I think was a, such a great way to use Hank and diversify how he, how he's portrayed in season two. I thought it was just so well done. One of the big differences between uh... 2008, 9, 10 in that area when this show was first airing and 2020 is in 2020, there would be beer that there would be that beer that Hank was making. It would actually be produced. And I I'm dying to know 
what a Hank beer tastes like because he does not strike me as the IPA kind of guy. So I'm just very curious, like, what is the taste of a beer that he would make? Because I'm just picking, I'm just picturing something very like either like a PBR type or an old style, something very, something very, very stereotypically like Midwestern and something like that. Because Hank, I actually looked this up because his accent is, uh, is very much Midwestern and he is in fact from South Bend, Indiana. Well, there you go. Yeah, maybe, but I could also see him being just someone who would, he, he would brew something that may not even be worth brewing like a Pilsner or something that's like a dime a dozen and uh, there's no heart or love or much difference than just buying like a Bud Light off of the shelf. Uh, that's just kind of what I think. But I'll tell you what, he's got the logo for Schrader Brown down pat. I would have bought that. That, that logo that logo is fantastic. That's why the, the, it's funny because I was texting Kevin while I was watching the season and I, you know, there are some important plot points that I didn't bring up, but I was like, Kevin, where could we buy this beer? And you told me we couldn't. And I was, yeah, it is very sad. I have to imagine there was people with breaking bad parties, uh, taping those labels to beer bottles and whatnot. At least I would have definitely been doing that. It's similar to like they had the Dharma beer and lost and people probably slapping those logos on things. On everything, really. Um, and so where do you want to go from here? I I think we should talk about Jesse and Walt because they they are very much in an abusive relationship. And I think you see that develop even more. And when I say abusive, I think there are, there are many times where Walter is, is so abusive to Jesse. But just as Jesse is about to kind of break away, Walt will do something or he will say something. And the reason that's like an abusive relationship is that if if you read about this and you kind of understand how that works, I mean, it's it functions very similarly. And I couldn't help but think about that as as I was watching this. And specifically, I'm thinking about those moments when, um, you know, Jesse is is trying to to kind of trying to break away a little bit and he just he can't escape and you know there's a point when even walt is trying to i guess for me he's playing pretend and trying to get back in the good graces of his family by making breakfasts and trying to teach walt jr how to drive and man walt is just not a very good person he just isn't and the the show break the title breaking bad i mean he's kind of just bad right for, right from the start and I, I the 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 name of this show should almost be breaking worse there is i think some relatable qualities to walt in some instances where i do feel for him or at least understand where he's coming from so when Tuco dies and they don't have a distributor for the math. He wants to get back to work right away, but I think he also understands that he needs to put in the, that time at home. And you're, you're totally right because the breakfast making and stuff is all very on the surface level stuff. Um, and then he gets into like the rot in the house and then at least he fixes the hot water heater. So at least there's something practical that he gets done. Uh, but there's obviously this lingering, the end of season one where, she uh his oh gosh why can't think of her name skylar where skylar thinks he has a second cell phone or she knows he has a second cell phone because she had hank check the phone records and there was no call but it was the call that was in the last episode of season one and she didn't make it up so she's kind of boiling this over in her head that walt's keeping secrets from her and he's trying to make grace when really she just wants the truth um in the meantime he's trying to lead this double life because the other thing is is it seems like 
maybe they oh and then of course he gets the the news that he's going to live and that makes him feel he is his reaction is angry uh and i think what of course what we're realizing is is that not that he had a death wish but he he really liked the freedom that came with having this sort of death sentence and now it's like well, what do i do now with that knowledge when i've already done all the stuff oh it turns out i really like being this drug dealer and I like being the drug dealer of my area because then you have him threatening people to stay off of his territory and just this almost instantaneous in, in moments like that where he he becomes this character. And I think uh, I'll jump ahead to the, the second to last season where you have Jesse and his girlfriend who we can definitely get into more, but he has the chance to save her from uh, choking on her own vomit in her sleep and he chooses not to. And there's a beautiful scene afterwards where Walt feels he, he's emotional after it. And the way that it plays to me is that he's not emotional over her death, but he has this sense of like, I don't think that he likes that he doesn't care that she's dead. And he realizes that he's lost that part of him. And then he moves on and goes back into uh, to Heisenberg mode. But I think there is that realization that there's a there's a part of him a part of his humanity that is that has been lost getting down this rabbit hole uh and that to me is sort of another another key takeaway of season two and that's why i like where the finale goes or and what it costs him but that to me is they, there's so many moments in the show they really hammer home that like little by little they're chiseling away at his humanity you know letting her die missing the birth of his second daughter to make this drug run all these other things um just the way that, that Walt was developed over the season was done like in such a pace that I think it was that it was done really, really well. Well, and I kind of like the back and forth with the way that they do the cancer treatments as well. It's not just bad or good. It's kind of it feels a little bit more natural that I think if this were a network show, I think they would kind of definitively go in one direction where it's in his case, it's not quite cured. It's better by the end of the season, but there's still a chance that it could come back. And, and I really appreciated kind of that, that realistic feeling and the fact that they will take entire episodes to kind of do a diagnosis and then it keeps going. And it's not one of those things where that it gets resolved in, in one episode. And I, I did really like that moment when he is coughing or not the moment, but there are, there are multiple episodes where he's just constantly coughing. And Kevin, if there's one thing that you know about a movie or television show is that when a character coughs, he or she is going to die at some point in the very, very near future. And it is, it is a trope that is so played out at this point that you just know that when a character coughs, something as bad is going to happen because characters don't like we cough and it's just because it's cold outside or we have a cold. Like, but when a character coughs on a TV show, it's like they're, they're going to die. So I think they played off that super well. And what they're able to do with that is that, yes, he is coughing and you think he's in a really bad situation. He thinks he's in a really bad situation because there's a point when he coughs up blood and he decides that there he decides that he and Jesse have to just spend a 24 hour period um more so than that just make cooking all of this meth and being able to support his family with all of the money that they're going to get from this pristine meth and it undoubtedly leads to one of the best episodes 
of the season when it is basically just the two of them. I don't know if they ran out of budget or something or they were saving their budget for a later episode, but just doing two characters in the desert in an RV is a really, really good way to save money. And uh, I think it works out really well. And I don't know if you've ever watched The Sopranos, Kevin, but there is an episode of The Sopranos that people who have watched both probably uh, know in the back of their mind where two characters kind of get stuck out in the snow. And both of those episodes serve similar purposes. The difference in this case was this was the two main characters of the show just having to play off of each other and basically try to save themselves. And if there's one thing that I appreciate, Kevin, it's that science always saves the day on this show. It does cause some problems, but it also saves the day. It's like beer. It's the cause of and the solution to all problems. So it's funny you say that because they mentioned the budget for this episode. The intention was indeed for this to be a pseudo bottle episode. But because of having to deal with the airport and things like that, it ended up being the second most expensive episode of the entire season. (laughs) So that went awry. But I think it was worth it. Uh, That episode four days out is my favorite episode of the season by far. Great character stuff between Walt and Jesse. Near-death situation. Genuine, how the hell are they going to get you know, out of this jam? Um, some really good visuals in there. Like I think about there's a moment in the episode where Jesse – where they've de-layered because it gets so hot. And Jesse's wearing a black T-shirt and he's in the shadows. And Walt's laying down a cot in a white T-shirt. And there's light coming out from outside shining onto him. Some really good stuff like that in the episode. And just that, that to me – We talk about season one where the episodes all kind of seem like one long narrative. This definitely, I think, has episodes that stick out more individually. And by far, Four Days Out was my favorite of the season. Really strong stuff. Just again, if we're talking about hot takes, that Brian Cranston guy, he's a very good actor. And you talk about the filmmaking, and I think this is a really good time. There's two opening scenes that I want to talk about. And I think it really speaks to the quality of the filmmaking one of them is this very long one-take shot. What, which drug dealer is having the interaction with DJ Qualls' character? That would be Badger. So Badger is having this interaction with this undercover cop. And there, there are moments, and Badger's trying to figure out whether this person is a police officer or not. And it is this incredible shot of them just talking on a bench and there are no cuts whatsoever. So the tension is just building and building. And at one point Badger seems to get it. And then he, uh, he makes the fatal mistake and tries to sell him the drugs. And that's when he gets arrested. That is just, it's very, very impressive filmmaking just to do that in one shot. The performances by both of the actors, two of whom, these are not two of the main players on this show, but the way that they are able to play that scene is so great. DJ Qualls is a police officer. I'm not sure if I believe it or not, but that's that is a totally different conversation. But the performance itself by both people was so impressive. And then there but that, is doesn't a, that doesn't that make him the perfect undercover detective? Those that you you can't buy him as a police officer. See, that's that's actually I was hoping you would bring that up because that's that's kind of what I was thinking as I was saying it, because, yeah, I guess in a way that he is then the perfect undercover police officer, because with all due respect to DJ Qualls, he kind of looks like he's on drugs a little bit. Yeah, that's just his his body type. No, no accusations, no alleged things here. That's just that's just how it is. But again, it works for him to be uh, someone who's undercover, someone who does purchase drugs to look the way he does. 
And there is the uh, the other opening scene. Which drug? Which, I'm sorry, because I'm terrible with names. But which drug dealer is the one that is killed? That is Combo. Combo. That is that is also such a great scene because you are anticipating the fact that something bad is going to happen. You just know it. You can feel it in your bones. The way that the cars are menacingly driving around, and it's just, it's so great. And the payoff is so great. And I mentioned that the ATM was not even close to being the darkest death of the season, just because the fact that it, it is basically a child that murders combo. That is, I would probably put this at number two. It's so well done. And I am just so impressed by the way that they executed that scene. And again, I'm going to bring up another famous TV show. I'm not going to say who died, just in case you have not seen The Wire. Kevin, you haven't seen The Wire, have you? I have. I've seen all of The Wire. You've seen all The Wire. So I'm going to spoil an element of, I believe it is season five. You remember Omar, right? Of course. Omar is one of the most famous characters on the show. And he is kind of this, he is this agent of chaos. He's not quite a protagonist. He's not quite an antagonist. And the buildup is who is finally going to get Omar, who's finally going to bring down the king and who's going to kill him. And it's literally just a kid seemingly out of nowhere that just shoots him in the head. And this scene kind of reminded me of that because it's so unexpected because it's, again, literally a kid that murders somebody who is... I mean, he's not a powerful drug lord, but he is he's a bigger guy. He's a drug dealer and he does seem to have some idea what he's doing. So it was uh, those are two opening scenes that I really wanted to highlight, because even though they're not necessarily, quote unquote, character based, it speaks to the quality of the filmmaking itself. Most definitely. Both of those scenes are awesome. I don't think anyone would have expected that the kid would have been the one to kill Combo in that opening, which makes it even more surprising. Love the the one long shot with DJ Qualls and Badgers too, but you actually did not mention my favorite opening of maybe not even just the season, but maybe the entire show, the opening of Negro y Azul with the Narco Corrido. Do you know what a Narco Corrido is? I am not familiar. I learned all about this on the podcast. So Negro y Azul is the episode that opens with the band playing the song about the the legend of Heisenberg. Uh, and this, this opening was so awesome that my friend who also was a Breaking Bad fan, anytime we hung out, no matter what we were doing, we just start the hangout by listening and watching this video. So Narco Corridos is like a subgenre of like regional Mexican ballads that are basically like tall tales and legends of drug dealers. There's a big NPR article from 2009 about it that actually inspired this opening, and you can still find it if you search for it online. But a lot of these songs are funded by like drug dealers themselves to make these over overwrought ballads about themselves, and they perform them for like these expansive parties and things like that. It's just so fascinating. So obviously this isn't the case here. It's more about the tall tale of Heisenberg, and it kind of predicts his demise and things like that. Uh, it's such a wonderful, well done song and such a cool, like cultural touchstone that they were able to touch upon just by stumbling upon this NPR article. And if there is any podcast episode you want to go back and listen to from the official Breaking Bad one, make it this episode because the tale of them discovering what a narco credo is and then going and trying to find a band to do it is all very fascinating. And that made me enjoy the opening even more than on the surface stuff because you know, what a cool thing for just to, to open an episode with a, a, a song made specifically for your show. 
uh, and going and going the extra mile to produce it about Heisenberg, who's whose legend is even just starting. That just it meant a lot to me. I loved it. One of the other things that I find so impressive in relation to that is one of the things that season one brings up is this idea that Albuquerque is just this very boring suburb. And I, in a meta textual way, the show is actually making Albuquerque much cooler. And I think that opening that you're describing is part of what does that. It makes Albuquerque feel more specific and even to the point where I firmly believe that the the chicken restaurant that that Gus runs um, is what is it called? Poyos? Los Poyos Hermanos. Los Poyos Hermanos. Like that feels just so specific and so great that I think that also it kind of lends to Albuquerque just feeling more specific and a little bit hipper than the show was even portraying in season one. I agree. We're going to get into to that in a second. Uh, you're going to need to learn the name Poyos Hermanos because A, it's going to be in the rest of the, the show. And B, God, something about this show just makes me hunger for fried chicken every time they mention Poyos Hermanos. It's bad. So the reason, the reason that I'm going to continue to get confused. So I live in Memphis, Tennessee now. There is a, there is a really good chicken restaurant in this city called Gus's Fried Chicken. So wow. <laughs> So I am perpetually going to be confused by this because Gus's fried chicken is in Memphis. Gus owns the chicken restaurant Los Poyos Hermanos in this show, and I'm just going to get confused by it. Okay, that, fair enough. And actually, I have a trivia note for you, and I want to see if you're going to be able to guess this. In the desert where they were filming, uh, especially four days out and things like that, they actually had to share the desert location with another film that was being uh, made at the time. And I want to see if you can think back to like, you know, what's a film that came out or maybe was filmed in like 2008, 2009 that would have had a desert scene that is just I haven't seen it, but it's supposedly very terrible. And I'll give you a hint. Christian Bale is in it. This is really I think I know the answer. So I originally had a different guess, which was Thor, because it was I would have said that has a desert scene. I'm going to say Terminator Salvation. Jerome, you have correctly guessed the movie that was being filmed on like the same strip of land. They at least shared some road is what they talked about. And uh, that's when Vince Gilligan was like, this is you really see our guerrilla filming crew versus their huge Hollywood crew in effect while they're there. Um, But yeah, I I've only seen the first two Terminator movies as a way to protect myself from the rest of uh, what's supposedly very terrible. So, Kevin, I'm going to. I'm going to completely side rail this podcast for just a second to say that you are absolutely correct in your assertion that the first two Terminators are really the only iconic ones. But I will tell you that Terminator Dark Fate, I think, is at least worth a watch. Okay. The other three are garbage. I think Terminator Dark Fate, because they bring back Sarah Connor, I actually think it's it's worth watching. But Terminator Salvation is very boring. And basically... Kevin, Mike Thomas and Matt Waters have brought this up on other real world podcasts that if your movie has either Sam Worthington or Jai Courtney, your movie is screwed. And the Terminator franchise in two different movies had both Sam Worthington and Jai Courtney. Ah, that is very unfortunate. So they were they so they were doomed to start no matter what. Both of those Terminator movies were doomed to start. And thankfully, Breaking Bad did not make these casting choices. They only cast good people. Well, let's talk about. Well, I was going to say, let's talk about another good person that they cast. That being 
the man who plays Gustavo Fring, uh, Giancarlo Esposito is his name. They intentionally wanted this character, the next person that they were going to sell in wholesale, their meth that they cooked, to be the total opposite of Tuco. Now, Giancarlo Esposito has a very long Wikipedia page. I don't know that I, if I had seen him, I didn't remember him before then. But he is the owner of several franchises of a fried chicken restaurant called Los Pollos Hermanos, or maybe just Pollos Hermanos. And he's just a very unassuming, friendly manager of the store. You don't get to see him very much in season two, but it is obviously very, very clear that he has tremendous power. He is very smart. He has this this network of people behind him. He he, There is no nonsense in his business, which is something that I think Walt appreciates and takes very seriously. But this is unfortunately at the time where Jesse falls back into drugs, um, partially because of his newfound love interest in Jane. Uh, and that causes some tension between the two of them. And also that's what results in and. Uh, Walt missing the birth of his second daughter as they need to make this drug run to exchange for money. And Gus says, if you don't make this, then we just don't have to, then don't bother talking to me again. We're, we're out of business together. Um, and because Jesse had come high and stoned to the first part, the first meeting they were supposed to have that Gus didn't have with them, that sort of resulted in that. So that to me leads to this interesting thing of yes, Walt missed the birth of his daughter, but Jesse, in that sense, if he had just not shown up high, it wouldn't have led to that. So, And that leads to another thing that Vince Gilligan was purposely intending this whole show is for there to be debate about what is is Walt doing the right thing, the wrong thing. Is a lot Could a lot of this been alleviated if somebody else hadn't done something? A lot of questions like that, but... I, I like the idea of going the total reverse Tuco, and I think a fried chicken restaurant is a brilliant front for somebody like Gus to be a part of. Uh, so I have a question for you, Kevin, and this is this is important. I'm just curious to know in either the Wikipedia information that you have seen and other places, do they say what racial makeup Gus is? Like, I, do, I don't think it is ever addressed, at least not in I – don't, I don't remember if it's addressed in the show. He's very ethnically ambiguous. Because one of the reasons that I'm asking is that is that having somebody who is black owning a fried chicken restaurant is is an interesting choice because of course the, there is that stereotype and the fact that Los Pollos Hermanos is very clearly meant to be in Spanish. So I was just wondering if you knew whether he was African American, whether he was Afro Latino. That that's the, that's the reason that that I was asking. So according to Wikipedia, he was born in Copenhagen. And his nationality is both American and Italian. Um, I'm trying to see more. Oh, I didn't realize he was in the he was apparently in the Mandalorian. Good for him. He uh, is in the Mandalorian, and shockingly enough, the way that his character arc is playing out is actually very similar to Breaking Bad, where they so they introduce him late in a season, and he's going to be a bigger part of the next season. Okay. Well, so according to Wikipedia, his father was an Italian stagehand from Naples, and his mother was an African American opera and nightclub singer from Alabama. So, so he is biracial. Yes. I was just curious because it's it's so interesting to me that they they make those choices. And the thing about John about him is he has such a distinct voice. And anytime you hear it, it's just so noticeable when he's on the Mandalorian. And 
He was also, you're, you're going to love this, Kevin. He was Lex Luthor on the Harley Quinn animated series that is on DC Universe. And it was just so obvious that that was him because that that voice is just so distinct. And he know, he knows how to play it so well. And, I mean, he's just great. Like, even in the brief scenes, we don't get a lot about Gus, but, I mean, he's so great. He's the kind of person that can seem so menacing with Walt in one scene, but then on the other, he's just talking to Hank like he's just a regular business owner. Yeah, it's it's really incredible the 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 shift between just the quick shift between him being the 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 friendly chicken store manager to this uh, this apparent drug kingpin is so great. Um, I've not seen that Harley Quinn animated, but obviously DC's animated features tend to be of a much superior quality than a lot of their other stuff. Would you recommend watching that, uh, especially for Giancarlo Esposito's performance? Not just for his performance necessarily, because I think he is kind of a small-ish part of the show, but Brian and I did an entire podcast about this a couple weeks ago, where we talked about both Birds of Prey and Harley Quinn. The Harley Quinn stuff about DC Universe is non-spoilery, so you can hear us just gush over all of the voice work, and I never thought that I would watch a show and actually enjoy uh, Kaylee Cuoco because I despise the Big Bang Theory with every ounce and fiber of my being. But uh, his her voice work in the Harley Quinn is so good. And I hope that this show starts streaming on HBO Max or something so that people can actually watch it because it is so good. I mean, Alan Tudyk is the Joker. Um, Chris Maloney is a, is an alcoholic Jim Gordon. Diedrich Bader is Batman again. Lake Bell is poison. I mean, this, this show just, just incredible voice cast and Jason Alexander is on the show. It's, it's amazing. Now say I don't have the service to watch it, but would like to know more. Where can I listen to this podcast? You, of course. Great job. You're so good at this. You've been doing this 10 years. You you are a pro. You could, of course, go listen to this on the Enter the Real World feed on iTunes, uh, Superhero Pantheon, episode number 47, where it is our Harley Quinn omnibus, where we talk all about both that show as well as the movie Birds of Prey, which is uh, is criminally underrated based on its box office. Well, we talked about Gus Fring. This is the second of the four main crucial characters that are going to be part of the Breaking Bad tapestry going forward. The third is another person, part of his network who we meet in the finale after Jesse's girlfriend, Jane dies. You need somebody to come and help clean up. You need somebody who's been in, had some experience with these situations comes, asks a lot of questions, cleans up the place. So the police aren't suspicious and tells somebody like Jesse, who is obviously a little bit hysterical, obviously not totally with it because he's in such an emotional state, how to stay calm and what to tell the police. You, I don't think they give his name in the episode. His name's Mike. That's not a spoiler, but Mike is essentially Gus's cleanup man. He comes to the scene to help out Jesse, straighten things up. A lot of things that I don't think somebody like Jesse would consider before calling the police or having someone come to his house because you're just your mind's going a million places. So he Mike's the person who's emotionally detached. He's removed. He can just assess things, clean things up, and then go on his way and, and things carry on as they need to. Uh, and he's going to become very instrumental in the rest of Breaking Bad. And this is an actor you were very excited to see and texted me about him when he appeared on the screen. So the first, you, this is another that guy. He has been in so many projects. Can you believe that he is in the movie Airplane? That is really difficult to believe. 
I mean, you just look at his filmography and he's just been in so many movies that you have seen before. I'm talking about, and maybe not you specifically, but he's been in Gremlins and 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop and all of these kind of action-y type comedies. And he's playing very similar characters, except the difference here is that he gets a lot more time uh, to develop his character, not in the season, but as as we go forward and into Better Call Saul. But it's, it's, it's funny to me to see him after watching him on a season of Community and it's just, I mean, what a range this guy has to be able to go from Breaking Bad to then the, the fifth season of Community. It, well, and I, and I watched those in reverse because you had seen him on Community before watching Breaking Bad. So to see him go from Mike in this situation working from Gus to him on, on, uh, on Community was just like <sighs> mind exploding. Just seeing He was him also go. on an episode of Parks and Recreation as well. Yes, he was uh, the father of Ben Wyan on that show. Uh, so, yeah, you want to talk about range? This is your guy. Yeah, and, I mean, he's just so great. He's the perfect person to have play this role. And I think I, I'm gonna, this is the second time I'm going to compare this show to The Wire. They're just able to take these character actors, these older actors who have these long filmographies that you go to the Wikipedia page, and it's like 25 pages long with just different small roles that they played even brian cranston himself is is kind of in this and they just take these different character actors and they're just able to do so much with them and it's it's really impressive to see because they have so much to offer and you know a lot of these a lot of these actors have kind of gone on uh, to play similar roles in other shows since then and have just continued to kind of muddle around whereas on this show they've they've kind of been featured players and it's uh it's really impressive to see they've they've done such a great job of of building this ensemble and getting you invested in these various characters and we kind of have another character actor on somebody else who's kind of just bounced around on a number of different comedy things mostly and uh, i know you're really excited to talk about this one i am uh I'm trying to decide if I want to talk about him or Jane first. Let's talk about we got to talk. We got to talk about Saul. OK, we will. Well, first thing, the, the last thing I'll say about Mike is one thing I like about the choice of him as an actor is he absolutely seems like somebody who would have seen some shit. Yeah, you definitely get that impression just looking at his eyes. And I think I think when you have these kind of actors, I mean, I'm not saying they've gone through as bad of stuff as the as happens on Breaking Bad, but. There is definitely a world where they definitely have seen some shit in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And Mike definitely f- seems like somebody you're like, I would totally believe this is a guy who would know what to do in these situations. Now, you need somebody who has to we, – well, we get to the point with Badger where they realize, Walt and Jesse, that they're going to need legal representation going forward. That's just going to be the nature of the beast. And my one of my favorite lines in the whole show – is when Jesse introduces uh, introduces Walt to Saul, and they're outside of his office, and his law office is in a strip mall. It has one of those giant inflatable things you might see at a used car lot. You see his commercial on the TV in Jesse's room, and it's so cheesy. But he says, "You want a criminal? You don't want a criminal lawyer. You want a criminal lawyer in these situations." And boy, does Saul Goodman fit that profile. Played by Bob Odenkirk, who's been in a trillion things over the span of his life. Uh, obviously, I think Mr. Show was where he got his big start. And 
he's just amazing. I love Saul Goodman. One of my favorite characters in the show. He fits that smarmy lawyer who definitely has that criminal knowledge. He he gets all the people that society doesn't want. He represents the worst of the worst. Uh, and he himself just has that that gross, seedy, slick lawyer look to him. Uh, Vince Gilligan even mentioned that like his hair is something very specific that Bob Odenkirk had in mind uh, to further portray this character of Saul on the show. And he even puts out a little line that Saul's not his real name. He uses the name Saul Goodman, obviously, as kind of a to, to sound like it's all good, man. But also he says, oh, it's intended to sound Jewish to to appease some other people, but his real name is Jimmy. So he himself is also a fake. And, and that's kind of the thing you get with him is I feel like there's so much on the surface that of him that is feels so phony and artificial. Although when you, when you get down to it, he knows his stuff and knows how to get guys like Jesse and wall out of particular jams, or at least he's created his own network of people that can help people get out of jams. And I think he has that really great scene with, where it's Walt and Jesse and they've kidnapped him. And it seems like Jimmy and Walt have him by the ball, so to speak. And in fact, Saul basically just calls them out. And we, in fact, learn that Saul is so much smarter than you would have thought. And I think when you first see the commercial, I think they're trying to, it feels like the show is almost trying to lull you into a false sense of security about this character, because we've seen incompetent lawyers like this on numerous other shows. You think about shows like Night Court, you think about Lionel Hutz on The Simpsons. We've we've seen these kinds of characters before on television, and they are all incompetent. But in this case, even though he is meant to be this shyster of a lawyer, he ultimately is good at what he does. He is ultimately a very good criminal, quote-unquote, lawyer. And it's funny that I'm going to bring this comparison up, given the fact that they both ended up with spinoffs. But I don't know, were you ever a fan of the show Cheers, Kevin? Yes, I love Cheers. So Cheers is a really good show, but there's just something about when they bring Fraser Crane onto the show that the chemistry just changes in such a way that it, it's almost like they were missing something and they put Fraser Crane on the show. And he's like, you didn't even realize that you needed a character like that, but then he just makes it seem all the better. And I think Saul Goodman very much plays that same role here. You, I didn't know that I needed Saul Goodman on the show until he came on the show. And it works out so perfectly. And you think about Parks and Rec when you get when Adam Scott and uh, Rob Lowe get onto the show, and it just feels like the show just gets elevated by their mere presence. And I feel the same way about having Bob Odenkirk, who again was more of a comedy guy, and here, like so many comedic actors, he kind of ends up doing these supporting dramatic roles, and he's really good at it, while still able to being comedic, while still being able to be comedic. Most definitely. And I and I really like he's a character that Walt can't control. To a certain extent, maybe he can because obviously he wants his money. But at the same time, like Saul has the wherewithal and know-how. Walt can be as good as he can making this meth, but he's still a novice to this world at large. And like Mike, Saul's been through enough of this stuff, and or at least he has enough of his clients who have had enough of this stuff, that he has all this experience and know-how, and obviously mums the word with him, so there's a, a level of of trust that they have to have in him to make this all work. And I like that it's a character that, and, and that's similar to Gus too, that Walt just can't be in full control of these situations. He has to be agreeable to to 
following their commands and their lead if he wants to get what he wants in the end. See, but the way that it comes off to me at certain points is that Walton loves this to an extent. He loves the control, but I think he also, in a way, maybe he wouldn't say this out loud, but it seems like he enjoys kind of being in the fracas and being involved. I think it makes him feel alive. And I think that's what's so fascinating about his character is on the one hand, there are times when he is pretending to be the family man, but then the times when he really comes alive is, is definitely not when he's in the classroom. One of my favorite classroom moments, and <laughs> this has almost nothing to do with the show, but I feel like this says so much about Walt is there is a, there's a point when he gives a 40% on one of the tests and just writes the words, not even close. <laughs> and, and, and as somebody who is a teacher, I am not a science teacher, but I mean, just the idea of writing that every teacher who is being honest with themselves has had those moments where you just want to write that down. You must have gotten a great sense of satisfaction out of that scene. I mean, I would never do that to a student, but I have certainly been in positions where I've thought about it. Oh, of course. I'm saying there, there's a catharsis in seeing a character do that when you wish you could do that in real life. Absolutely. Yourself. And he has that he has an interaction with the student about a student trying to get a better grade. And just the way that whole scene plays out is pretty is pretty amazing as well. I think one of the things that one of the things and that would have been fascinating to me is. I, I totally buy that most of the people just have no interest in this, but I would almost be curious to know, like, what if there was a student who was actually interested in it? I'm not talking about Jesse, but like, what if there was a student who was actually interested in chemistry and was invested in the class and actually liked the class and what kind of dynamic that would have added to the show? I almost feel like it would have been made it a little bit too busy, but just the fact that everybody seemingly hates chemistry almost feels a little too unrealistic because... Like, there's got to be one kid who's just a complete nerd who likes this stuff. Of course. And you need those people in life to keep that industry going. So I hope there are kids like this who are, who are eating this stuff up. Maybe not in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I guess. Maybe not. And that definitely was not me in high school. It wasn't me either. I was I was not good in chemistry. Although, fun fact, again, I think I said this on the first episode. My chemistry teacher was a priest. Yes, you did mention that. That's pretty funny. Uh, okay, so I want to talk about Jane a little bit. This uh, Jesse gets kicked out of his house by his parents. He's living in his aunt's house, I guess. They have a squabble about who really owns it, who really cared about his aunt more, but it results in Jesse being evicted from the house. He finds his own little, like, one-bedroom. Can I just talk about that for a second? Because yes. I think that is such a weird... It's it's a weird scene on, on the one hand, because in that scene, I think we are meant to be sympathetic with Jesse because he mentions the fact that he took care of the aunt and all this stuff. And I think the parents come across as being very waspy and very cruel in those moments. But one of the things that I was thinking about as that scene was kind of playing out is like, if we were to see a prequel to this show that is not named better call Saul. And we, we saw the show better call Jesse, like, what there may have been like 50 times or however many times when the parents were sympathetic and they tried to get Jesse help and they put him through rehab and we don't see those moments. And I wonder if our perception of that situation is colored by the fact that we haven't seen those moments 
And that's why we sympathize with Jesse. Whereas if this was something where we had seen just how many times Jesse messed up, we probably would be more sympathetic to the parents' plight. Certainly. And I think you can even actually say that about Jane, his his landlord who lives next door, same age. Uh, you, you could see the trouble coming between the two of them where they become romantically intertwined. And along with a lot of other things going on in life, we talk about Jesse wanting to get out and he just can't. This this is kind of part of it. The, the combination of Combo's death plus Jesse, you know, not being able to handle that, but also falling into this romantic relationship. And then uh, Jane herself is somebody who we find out is going to uh, Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, she has this bit of an overbearing father who I imagine they probably split the lease. He is still distrust, uh, doesn't really trust her, checks on checks in on her all the time. And she has 18 months that kind of just get thrown away when her and Jesse get together. They just shoot heroin like they go from not being into drugs to heroin. That's a pretty big leap. Uh, and so they're just their lives are just filled with fornicating and and uh, taking food and art and drugs and just a, a life of hedonism for Jesse. And after everything he's been through, you could see why he would easily fall into a lifestyle like that. And you mentioned the hedonism, but I don't think it's ever idealized. And I think that's really helpful to the way that the show constructs it, because I think there is a world where it it kind of feels like it's this glorious thing, but it never it always comes across as being a little bit sad. And Christian Ritter is the if we were to draw the Venn diagram of Veronica Mars and Breaking Bad, this is our perhaps first and only link in that we have Christian Ritter on this show. She was also on Veronica Mars. I did not like her on Veronica Mars. I love her, love her, love her. clear to me why he would do that. And I just think the way that the character comes across and the way that she the, the performance, it's all there. And uh, she's really great. I am just, I walked away so impressed by everything I saw from her in this particular season. And you knew it wasn't going to end well. And part of me was wondering just how quickly things were developing because it, to me, it almost felt like at times like Jesse and maybe because this is the drugs were a contributing factor, or maybe this was a conscious choice, but it almost feels like Jesse more time is happening between Jesse and Jane in that they go from not doing anything to becoming lovers and saying, I love you and wanting to run away with each other. Where in the reality is, is that it's only like two months, if that for this relationship to develop. And with Walt, it just seems like things are moving at a glacial pace with his cancer and the fact that his wife is still pregnant for most of this. And she only just has the baby as Jesse's situation fully deteriorates. So I think at times it almost feels like Jesse's story is going along at a quicker pace than Walt's. Yeah, it is. And it's funny you say you like her in this show. And I actually, I liked it watching here, but at the time, and it might still be this day, she is considered one of the most hated characters in Breaking Bad history. I just think people may, and I, I don't remember exactly the reasons. I can tell you this. Is it because she has a vagina? Because I could see that being very plausible. So, un- unfortunately, in 2020 situations, yes, I can see that being the case. I can say this. Her voicemail is maybe the most annoying thing I've ever heard. But I, I do wonder if people just, that wasn't the Jesse they wanted. I actually, it, with with some 
distance between all that going on and now, I do find all that very interesting on the show. And what I do like is that her death does cause a, some debate between did Walt do the right thing or did he did he help Jesse with her dying because I, I, I could see both sides of both things because Walt gets the money from the drop off of the drugs and he's supposed to give half to Jesse and he won't do it because he's found out that Jesse is shooting heroin and, and, and all this and he says I'm not going to give you this money because you're going to shoot all of it into your arm so once you get cleaned up I'll give you the money. I can understand his point of view. At the same time, Jesse's an adult. He can do whatever the hell he wants with his money. It's his money. He earned it. He should get it. Uh, they even talk about Jesse and Jane do like, we're not going to just shoot. We're, we could take this money and we can leave and run away together and start a new life. And we're not going to shoot this money into our arm. And then they just stop and they get and they get high again on heroin. They even talk about like, no, we're going to flush it. We're not going to do it. So. Part of me wonders, like, is this a cycle that Jesse would have gotten out of if Walt hadn't let her go? And I'm not saying that Walt let her die for any reason that wasn't totally selfish to his cause. But I do – there is part of me that wonders, not that did Walt do the right thing, but would Je- is Jesse better off with her gone? Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense, and I think the short answer is yes. The long answer is, of course, yes, but – this morally reprehensible thing happened in order for it to take place. And it's something that Jesse is probably never going to recover from. And it will be a part of him for the rest of his life. So I think that that, that is a huge part of, of that as well. And I don't know. I, I, I can't say I'm surprised by the Jane hate because I think this just happens with female characters on television. But I think Kristen Ritter is just a fantastic personality. And I think the way that she portrays the character at times being very calm, at times being very manic. I mean, you see a lot. You see a lot of Jessica Jones in the in the way that Jane is portrayed, and I think it works out tremendously, tremendously well. And even though her character death, dying by vomit, is the darkest death of the season, if not the darkest death that has ever been on a television show. Yes, and we're going to talk – I'm, I'm going to use this as a transition. We're going to continue talking about a female character who is probably polarized by the audience, and it's going to lead to what to me was the most uncomfortable scene of the show, which covers a lot of ground after seeing uh, Danny Trejo's head on a tortoise, Jane dying by choking on vomiting, Combo being shot, and probably plenty of other things I can't remember at this exact time. The to me, the most the the scene that made me cringe the most that is hardest to watch. I can go back and watch all those other scenes I mentioned. No problem. I cannot watch Skylar sing happy birthday to you to Ted Beneke. It is too awkward and uncomfortable for me. I have to be honest. You were going in a Skylar direction. I thought you were going to say something about the uncomfortable the fight that they have in the last episode. (laughs) I absolutely thought that's where you were going. And the fact that it's that <laughs> is genuinely one of the funniest things. By the way, Ted, there, there's a character on Mad Men. It feels like they are the exact same character, and they almost look exactly the same. I'm talking about Betty's second husband. They're yeah. basically the same character. I That did not cross my mind when watching that, but now that you say that, I 100% can see that. Uh, Ted is... Uh, oh gosh. Oh, okay. So Skylar ends up going back to work while she's pregnant. She decides to go back to work because they need the money from her perspective. She doesn't know that Walt's getting all this drug money. So she's trying to go back to her old job 
uh, not as an accountant, but she's trying to be a secretary of sorts. And Ted, her old boss, is there and just gets her old job back. What I like about this and what I also like about uh, one of my favorite scenes in the series is when Brian Cranston and uh, Gretchen or I guess Walt and Gretchen go off to have their talk separately when she realizes that Walt's been lying to them saying that her family is giving them money for all these cancer treatments and such is this is a lot of show don't tell. They don't give you a lot of explanation to the history of Ted and Skyler and they don't give and they don't tell you explicitly a lot of the history between Walt and Gretchen. But boy, do their conversations, their interactions tell you a lot about those two and their relationships. Yeah, I mean, you just get such a great sense of kind of what the what ifs of this show, like what if Walt had stayed with Gretchen? I mean, there was clearly some sort of a romantic relationship or history there. And you definitely have to wonder, like, what is going on there? And there's clearly something between Skylar and Ted as well that is very much unsaid. And you do get that awkward scene. It's just funny to me that that scene is so, made, is so uncomfortable for you. I just I just thought it was kind of funny, and I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of where I was, but I I just I love the the way that they kind of do the, these parallel relationships and like in these what ifs, like what would they be happier if they had ended up with Gretchen and Ted respectively, uh, or maybe Ted would not have been able to meet his mother. Or wait, but that's the wrong show. <laughs> well, and the interesting thing about Skylar is like all of this coming back into her life couldn't be happening at a more perfect time. Obviously she's having issues with Walt at home when she is home. Walt's like off in his own land, not only doing drug stuff, but like he becomes obsessed with like the rot in the house, which by the way was a, a pretty fantastic metaphor too. Like you have to break open and to get the rot out of the house. It's infesting and spreading all over. Um, that was great. She's I mean, finding we- there's almost there's also a point when Walt almost basically rapes Skylar too. Yeah, was that the first or first or second episode? That was immensely uncomfortable. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, that that is something that is that is worth being uncomfortable about. And uh, yeah, every time Walt uh, feels his manhood, I guess he uh, just decides to bend her over a table. And in this case, uh, there was no consent, and it was that that was the most uncomfortable scene of the season for me. I will say, though, at least it was a lesson learned because I don't think that happens again for the rest of the season. Thankfully. And uh, I guess and there's there's some bending over by Skylar in a more in a more metaphorical (laughs) way in the finale. There is. Well, and also you see like she'll do like there's where Ted was leaving his office and she purposely like like dumps a cup of pens on her desk. So Ted will come in so they can spend time together or spend you know linger a little longer and he's going through a divorce and he's being very nice to her so she's getting a lot of the attention and stuff that walt isn't giving her including one of my favorite scenes of the show walt finally shows up to the hospital with their baby their baby holly is born he goes and sees her and the camera turns in such a way and we see that ted has been there the whole time it's almost comedic and i think it's intended to be that way it's almost like a sitcom and uh it's really great and this is just mere moments or minutes or hours after we find out that Ted is a crook. Ted has also broken bad. Yes. He's been cooking the books to try to keep his company afloat. So no matter where Skylar finds herself, it's just men doing stuff to, to keep their power. Uh, and Walt, Walt cooks Mac, Walt cooks meth and Ted cooks the books. Aha. There you go. And 
I remember you talking about in season one how one of something that you really did not like is that Skylar didn't have agency. And I think it's would you say it's fair that season two rectifies that in a big way, especially we can talk with uh, the finale where she everything blows up in Walt's face. I mean, this is this is really what I wanted to end uh, this episode on was this conversation, because I think it's such an important it is the singularly most important scene of the of the season and of the series up to this point, because it is going to fundamentally change the way that the the rest of the show works and whether they get divorced or not, because there's going to be some period of separation at least. And uh, it just it really changes the dynamics of the show. And with Walt maybe not having to worry about sneaking around as much, like how is that going to open up the dynamics of the show as well? This this is not a comfortable scene to watch. If you have ever been through a bad breakup in your life, then you are going to know what this scene feels like because all of Walt's lies essentially are exposed. Even though she does not directly find out what he is doing, she knows that he is lying and. You know, it's one of those things where if 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 Walt had just waited like two or three years and he got a smartphone and he started a Slack channel or something like that, all of this could have been avoided. But no, alas, he has to rely on the flip phone and flip phones do not have apps. So he had to have a second phone. And when he was drugged up, he asked his wife which phone it was in one of the one of the singularly best moments of the episode oh, and of the season. Incredible. It's, uh, it's pretty great. Just two words, which one, and you're off and running. And once once Skyler finds out the wolf can be on his own, she kicks his ass to the curb in classic fashion, and Walt 100% deserves it. It is, uh, it is Skyler's finest hour. I can see how Proud Boys and uh, 4chan people would not like this, but I thoroughly enjoyed it in a way by the end because Walt got what he deserved. Like just those words, two words, which one like goosebumps, chills, a gasp, an audible gasp. It's it's an amazing moment. The damn drugs they turned on Walt didn't let him keep his lies in in Skylar. But that's that's such a great thing is like something that with with Walt that I think probably can frustrate a viewer is how does he keep getting away with all of this stuff? And then all of it blows up in his face. She she learns that. He has the two cell phones. He she talked to Gretchen and realized not only are they not having an affair, but they never gave him any money. And worst of all, she talked to his mother because the alibi for them being able to go to the desert and cook for four days was that he was going to visit his mom. Not only did she not pay for the cancer, she never knew it happened and he never visited her. So she just from those two words, which one started going into major reconnaissance work, figured it all out. And she is now leaving Walt. And yes, I'm I'm with you. You could you could talk about the decisions Walt's made, right or wrong, for his family, whatever. He 100% deserves this, and this was a great moment for Skyler. It's a great way to end the season, uh, you know. And and th- it's something like this that makes me really want to jump into season three and and go with and see what happens next. Just a, an incredible finale to a great season. Just well, you so mentioned you mentioned this is the last moment. It is in fact not. No, it is. Yeah, I assume so, that you're going to get to that. Oh, we're going to we're talk about the pink bear for sure. So I want to know what you thought. The episode one starts with this 
half-burnt pink bear in a swimming pool where everything's in black and white except for this bear. And you see it on a few more episodes at the beginning. Did you have any initial thoughts when you saw that bear as to what that might be? Or were you just going to take the ride and see where, where it ends up? So, I, I don't know. I might go to hell for this. But um, I'm probably going there anyway. So, here we go. Uh, this oh. reminded me of Schindler's List. There is a very specific scene in Schindler's List when everything is in black and white except this girl's sweater. And the girl's sweater is kind of meant to signify what happened to her eventually in that movie. And that is kind of how I felt about this. And as it turned out, it was not as off as I thought it would be. The pink bear is uh, the, the purpose serves very much a similar one as it did in Schindler's List. So, and then it's very dark. It's very dark. And there's a dark reason for the bear to be pink and whatnot. Right. Um, so the reason this ha- – so what you learn is in the episode is that the reason this happened is that Jane's father, he himself is an air traffic controller. Of course, he's suffering a lot of grief from his daughter's death. Uh, he goes back to work well before he is ready, and this allows for a midair co- a collision to occur over the skies in Albuquerque, specifically over Walt's house. And I don't know if you paid much attention to the episode titles, but if you go with episodes – uh, one, four, ten, and and the finale, which are all the episodes that begin with the pink bear, they reveal what happens in the season finale, which is seven thirty seven down over ABQ, which ABQ being the uh, the airport code for Albuquerque. All I can say is uh, air traffic control seems like the most stressful job in the world. There was a uh, there was a movie with John Cusack and. That movie was just very stressful, and this even that moment was very stressful. Just what's happening? It's it's pretty amazing. And that that actor, do you? you I assume you are going to tell us what what other show he was on in a prominent role, semi prominent role. Absolutely, and I didn't recognize him at first, but this is John Delancey, definitely best known as Q from Star Trek. He also does a ton of voice acting. But when I think of like villains in Star Trek, Q to me is immediately the first person that comes to mind. And he was really fantastic in the role as Jane's dad as somebody who obviously loved his daughter but showed it in a very tough way, which I think is understandable from the from the perspective of he's letting her live alone, but also this is somebody who has this history of drug problems who and he goes with her to every single one of her narcotics anonymous meetings. And that's something that maybe if it even is just to keep her accountable and reliable, I think that shows a lot of love for a father to do that every single week with his daughter as well. So it's obviously clear that he loves her, even if the way he shows it me, he always has the best intentions, even if he is a little severe. Uh, And I thought he just did a tremendous job. So it was really good to see him in the show as well. I think my one critique and probably my biggest critique of the season is a little bit of deus ex machina with the fact that the one person that Walt meets in that bar is, of course, the father. That was a little bit too convenient for this show, I thought. I actually really like that scene. I mean, the performances are great. Like, I'm not I'm, – I'm independent of – the performances, which are great. I just felt like the situation, it felt a little implausible. It's definitely a little, well, first I like the phone call where Walt was just so quick to be able to lie about uh, going out to try to find diapers at several different stores uh, and then hang up the phone. And even, <laughs> even Jane's father gives him like, oh, well done, you know, quick thinking. Uh, so I uh, think there's, that, a, there's, there are probably some wives who would say that is the worst thing that Walt does on this show. Probably. That's the thing is there's a, 
your your um your your point of view on what the worst uh, atrocity is in this show could definitely vary. Uh, it it is definitely a little bit of a trope, like the two characters who we know have something in common, but we they don't know it. Kind of meeting together in a circumstance like a bar. Uh, but it was done well enough that it definitely didn't bother me. But I completely understand your point of view. Um, and yeah, well, and, and bother is a strong word. Like I, I get, I like the scene. It just it felt a little convenient, and especially for a show that that doesn't that doesn't rely on those tropes or does everything possible to kind of defy and go against tropes. Yeah, in some respects, you're you're saying that it stands out so much because it is a trope from a show that doesn't do it so often. So in some ways, it's like a weird compliment. Absolutely. There's another trope, killing Danny Trejo is kind of a trope, but, you know, Danny Trejo just has to die. That's what he does when he's in a movie or TV show. Well, one little thing of convenience they did that I got a kick out of was that they had Walt Jr. start uh, a, a donation website for his dad, uh, SaveWalterWhite.com, which is still active to this day and definitely was a nice convenient way for Saul to funnel the money to to Walt via that website. Um, and this is another thing where it's sort of like old tech because this could have been a GoFundMe or uh, some other means of fundraising rather than just a PayPal link on a website uh, and if it were taking place in the modern day. Yeah, we could have had Walt in his, uh, his drug dealing Slack channel as well as uh, this situation with um, being able to have a GoFundMe page. So just shows you how much the world has changed in 10 years. I mean, because that, web- that website looks legitimately awful. I don't <laughs> know if, like, and I get, like, he's supposed to, maybe he's not the most techie person in the world, but, like, that felt like a MySpace page from, like, 2005. Yeah, it, it's definitely, I mean, very old tech, but, I mean, what are you going to expect from a, a high schooler who probably doesn't have the most advanced tech background? I feel like now when you do that, the high school the high school kid probably knows everything, probably knows how to damn code and would make the most beautiful-looking website of all time. Oh, definitely. And speaking of Walt Jr., how about that scene where uh, Walt is making him drink that vodka at the party? That scene is really, really dark. That's another... I, yeah, I, I don't understand why how you could say that birthday scene is uncomfortable when this exists. Dude. That scene, uh, uh, that scene was bad. Dude, you go to work on Monday and you watch two coworkers do that and tell me you don't want to just go commit your suicide in the bathroom after watching it. Okay, but there's a difference between going to my workplace and <laughs> your, or your workplace and seeing it live in front of you and just watching uh, a television show. Well, like, yes, if I was seeing this in person, it would be extremely uncomfortable, at, depending on the two people, of course. But, like, if it was husband and wife and they're working together, then maybe it wouldn't be. Maybe it would be weird. Also depends on how much alcohol is involved. There's a lot of things that you have to take. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's there's going to be people who agree with me on this. So you tell me, listener, what, what do you find to be the most hard-to-watch moment of Breaking Bad Season 2? Uh, the thing I do like in that scene is that it's Walt Jr. His father is giving him vodka, but Walt Jr. looks to his uncle for approval. Like, is this okay? Or And all this other stuff. So that, show again, continues to show that dynamic of how Walt Jr. views Walt and how he views his uncle. And uh, yeah, that to me, that was a great continuation of that little story from season one. And uh, they pretty much poochied Marie's uh, shoplifting problem. Yeah, they're working on it, as Hank says. I mean, they basically do the equivalent of poochie flew home and was never seen again. But I do uh, I do really like that he's aware of it and just says like, yeah, we're working on it. That, that to me gave me a good chuckle. 
Uh, How many like, Simpsons references can I stuff into each podcast episode? That's not the- enough, if you ask me. <laughs> I made to one of my friends who. Uh, oh, I'll tell you this because I asked you yesterday. So yesterday, I I'm going to see 1917 the day after we record this, and I had asked you about violence levels just just for the sake of the girlfriend, and I asked Jake Ziegler, a friend of ours who is also a big Simpsons fan, and he and his response was. If the opening of Saving Private Ryan is a 10, then this movie is probably like a 4. And I said, what about Saving Irene Ryan? And he did not know what I was talking about. And I was very upset by that. What season is that from of The Simpsons? Uh, Let's see. It's Beyond Blunderdome, which is probably like season 10? See, I think that might just be a little bit outside some people's realm. I think people were just starting to give up on that show. It's okay. I believe it's the the it's the premiere of season eleven, the Mel Gibson episode. Isn't it remarkable to think that you mentioned The Simpsons and Brian Cranston has had two shows of multiple seasons length that aired on Sunday nights in between the run of The Simpsons, Malcolm in the Middle, and Breaking Bad. That is pretty remarkable. Uh, the last note I have is just uh, some notes about drugs on television. Well, first, Vince Gilligan gives AMC a ton of credit for being brave with the stuff they were willing to show on television. Uh, but second, they talk specifically about drugs on the show. At this time, apparently, there was uh, it was fine to show the exhaling of illegal drugs, but not the inhaling of them. Make of that what you will. And when they had scenes with Jesse smoking, he was apparently smoking like a sugar candy. And it was not pleasant. Like it burned his lungs and it gave him like the bad kind of sugar high. So I thought those were two notes uh, worthy of mentioning. The other tropish thing that Breaking Bad does that really stood out was the moment when he gets high off the heroin the first time and he literally levitates. Uh, that was a little much. I like that, though. And I also like the song choice, that which was apparently in and of itself like something that they went to a lot of great lengths to find like a good song to, pa- to match See, up when with. It it. Co- when it comes to music, it just goes over my head. So it, that, that doesn't really... It makes scenes so good. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Anyways, uh, that's all I had for season two of Breaking Bad. I adored this season. Do you have anything else you want to mention and uh, your overall thoughts of season two of Breaking Bad? I mean, I definitely wanted to mention the filmmaking, which I did. And I think that there's – I feel like we could do four hours and just, just talk about moments of the show. I think – there's just there's just a lot of really good stuff, and I feel like it's going to get to a point where this show is going to go to a like I could see our our last episode going like three hours long, legitimately, and possibly being even two parts. But um, I, I feel like we've hit all of the major points, and it was just a really good episode of television. You know, I I can't see myself saying that this is going to be my favorite show of all time, but I certainly appreciate a lot of what it is doing. I appreciate the performances. I love the pacing of the show. I love just about everything. There are just those moments that stand out that just don't totally work, but it, I, I don't think it ultimately deters because I think that there's so many TV shows now that feel like they are going for that 10-hour movie feeling, and this feels like it was a season of television with individual episodes that stand out, and we've mentioned uh, so many of them. And I'm looking forward to watching season three very, very soon. Yes, as am I. That's something like now that's over. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get started and talk about that next episode. Um, 
let's see. I feel like there was something else we mentioned. Oh, it's you're right. We could probably go four hours of the finale, but it's a good thing that we're splitting up season five into two episodes because, whew, that would definitely be. I still think. Show. I still think season five, the second half. I think we still might go a really long time, even though it's eight episodes. Yeah, it's 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 very possible. So. That's all for season two of Breaking Bad. But before we go, Jerome, what else do you have that people can listen to on the Real World Podcasting Network? Please make sure that you go listen to Superhero Pantheon. We are doing episodes. We are doing seven movies this month. And what a lineup, Kevin. I'm going to give you the lineup for this uh, this this month. We are reviewing the 1990 Captain America, the 1989 Punisher, the 2004 Punisher, the 2008 Punisher, the two Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider movies, and we are capping the month off with Ben Devil, or Daredevil, as more people might think of it as. So two things come to mind. One, we're not going to be able to do season three of Breaking Bad because you're going to commit seppuku by the time that month is over. And two, the only Punisher I see going on is the punishment you and your host are doing to themselves. Wow. You not, you didn't say suicide. You said seppuku, which for our audience, <laughs> I feel like you're kind of explaining the joke, but what is that for viewers who or listeners who might not know what you're talking about? Do you purposely – isn't that where you purposely impale yourself with the sword? Yes. It yeah. is the Japanese – it is the Japanese honor death basically. There's no honor in watching any of those films though. Is, is the Captain America one a real film or was that like a bootleg thing? It is. It is a real movie that came out. Okay. It's not like the 1994 Fantastic Four movie that's fake. okay. It Maybe that's what I'm exist. But yes, the 1990. Hey, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of that movie. Celebrating something, all right. And the Nicolas Cage Ghost Riders with Sam Elliott. I mean, these are the choices that you made, I guess, when you started this pantheon. We are we are almost done. Like we are rapidly coming to a close with the superhero pantheon, and then we're going to be moving on to other other projects. I, I with this bottom of the barrel month you have coming up, I can tell you're getting close to the end. Good, <laughs> you are nothing if not thorough. I don't think anyone can blame you for that. You know, it's pretty sad when you look at the list of seven movies and you're like, oh, Daredevil's the best. <laughs> yeah, you're like, thank God, I can't wait to watch that, and you get to hear Evanescence twice in that movie. God, I remember when Evanescence was played over a WWE pay-per-view and Chris Benoit was involved, and it's super awkward now. Talk about seppuku. Uh, You can listen to us talk about Veronica Mars on our podcast that has finished. Mars Investigated, we talked about all four seasons of the show, as well as the movie, books, and played again Dick on a bonus episode. Myself and Ben Lundy have already completed a podcast all about the television series Lost. Go back and listen to those episodes. Currently ongoing, the archive of my Adventure Time podcast, Flooping the Pig, with Justin Houston and Brad Garoon, is being posted. And once all 60 episodes of that is posted, we will begin anew and finish up the series and probably be back for the HBO Max stuff when that is done as well. I already mentioned you can follow me on Twitter at K413. Jerome, you are? At Jerome C1985. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. You will hear us on other podcasts throughout the rest of the month, but we will see you next month with a brand new episode of Real Bad. So now I have to figure out which coworker of yours I'm awkwardly going to pay off to sing happy birthday to you in June.